grit to me is just that understanding that nothing really comes easy and you've got to put the work in to get the desired result. You get lucky every once in a while, but it takes a lot of grit in sales and business development to get somebody to trust you with their business. And it's it can be a grind sometimes, and you've got to have the grit to get through it. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I like to get these things started by reading my guests' backgrounds back to them. So if you will, I'm going to read it back to you. I have a bit of a reputation for butchering these things. So just let me know <laughs> what I do butcher and we can go from there. Deal? Yeah, sounds good. All right. Awesome. So you started at Expeditors International in 94, starting as a management trainee, doing that for a year, and then moving to export manager for three years. By the way, this is a completely different world than anything that I've ever been (laughs) exposed to. So I'm positive that I'm butchering this. And then you went to a construction company to be a director there for about three and a half years. This was in 98. And then you had a 17 and a half year run at a company called Expeditors. And for those that don't know, it's a Fortune 500 still, I think, shipping and logistics freight That's forwarding right. company. You started as the uh, director for global security for three years. Then you went to San Diego, actually, as the district manager there for three years. Then San Francisco as a district manager there for five years. Then the regional vice president for Northwestern U.S., which presumably is like the West Coast and probably where you're based now in Seattle for six and a half years. Then you left. And so 17 and a half years later, you left. You then became a senior consultant and advisor for a consulting firm. You did that for about 10 months. And I'm curious if at the time you were doing any consulting for Flexport during that gig. And as of what, six months ago, maybe not even five months ago, you became the chief revenue officer for Flexport. What did I miss? What did I get wrong? No, no, no. Hey, listen, it was all it was all pretty good. I actually started with Expeditors. That was that first job I went to New York. And what's kind of interesting is I met the founder of Expeditors, Peter Rose, kind of in a fluke thing. And at the time it was a $400 million company. And then I, I went that construction company as I went back and worked for my dad for three years. And then I went back to Expeditors after that. My dad sold the company and he was ready to retire. I certainly was not. And then I spent the last, all that time working for experts in different positions till June of 2019. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that chance meeting with the founder of Expeditors? I had an internship at the Port of Seattle right after college. And I drove him out for a photo shoot for a magazine cover. And if you see this magazine cover, Peter's standing there and about 10 feet off the page, I'm standing there in the rain with an umbrella. <laughs> and as soon as he got done, I got him under the umbrella and he was quite a maverick. you know. He really disrupted the industry at that time. And he told me I was wasting my life working for the government and that I should do something else. And I was oddly intrigued by this guy. And I, I stalked him for three months until he hired me. The really remarkable thing about Expeditors is from that time when it was about a $400 million company, when I left in 2019, we're at $8 billion, And it was all organic growth, no mergers or acquisitions or anything. So it was quite a ride during that period of time. And I learned an incredible amount not just freight forwarding and logistics and supply chain, but life in general and business and 
it was, it was a great place to be. Can you tell the audience, for those that don't know, like me, a little bit more about what does that mean, freight forwarding and logistics? Yeah. So everything that you're probably in your house and that you're wearing or that's in a store, there's logistics companies that manage all the free flow of those goods and, and really manage world commerce. So a freight forwarder is traditionally a non-asset-based or light asset-based company that manages the whole supply chain. So in Expeditor's case, we would buy and sell space on ocean carriers and air carriers, manage all the governmental stuff, customs declarations, all the different things you have to do to import or export goods from the country, and provide a layer of visibility and compliance over the top of that. So it's a it's heavily regulated. It is extremely distributed. The, the really large players in the world only have a few percent of the market share. So it's a massive market. As you can think about everything that's shipping around the world, that's essentially what they do. I have so many questions. So when you worked at a port, what does that actually mean working on a port? I imagine it like, again, this is going to sound so dumb, but I love gangster movies. And so what I think of all of the gangster movies that I see, the depiction of ports is like big containers coming in and out. You know, in some cases, it might be Batman saving the day from a drug deal that's going right. on or the Goodfellas, you know, distributing whatever they are between the ports. I guess uh -huh. first question, does that happen? Second question, have you seen it? And third question, what does it actually mean in practice to work at a port? Well, let's take the last one first. To work at a port, in my case, I was actually at the Seattle Tacoma International Airport, but it's all managed by the Port of Seattle, so the ocean port and the airport. And most port authorities are governmental agencies around the world. We were responsible for helping manage air carriers and all the different airlines that flew in and out of SeaTac. And so I had an internship there working with those people that were trying to drive more business into the port of Seattle. And one of the things we did was we dealt with press and VIPs and people moving to the airport, things like that. And that's how I ended up on the runway with Peter having this picture taken. When you say work at the port, there's all kinds of different jobs at the port. There's the governmental jobs that manage that because usually the port is owned by a government agency. But there's the steamship lines and the longshoremen and the stevedores. And those are the people that take the freight on and off the vessels and manage that whole process. And the same thing for air freight, moving the freight on and off the aircraft. You asked me about the nefarious stuff. You know, every once in a while, you would see some things. Or here's some things that happen. I mean, they certainly do happen. But for the most part, it's nothing like the movies. I haven't seen too much of that. So if port authorities are managed by governmental agencies, mm -hmm. and you have to imagine that some, depending on geography, these ports can be really significant access points to trade and the economy of some of these countries, cities, places in general. I have a hard time going through TSA and dealing with the crap that we have to go through there of just like putting your bags through and going through a metal detector. And I imagine there's a lot more compliance and regulations across port authorities and then more importantly, across different geographic parts of the world. Is there a standardized way with which governments enforce whatever it is that they enforce across the world at different ports, or is it pretty consistent? The answer is no. I mean, there's not a standard. I mean, that's what drives the complexity of global trade. So some countries have just as much export compliance procedures as they do import compliance procedures. 
every country has their own set of governmental agencies that manage those things. So in the U.S., you know, it's U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. It's the USDA, FDA, depending on the products that you're importing or exporting, those all those different agencies have to be involved. And, and most times a freight forwarder makes a declaration or a customs broker makes a declaration on behalf of the importer or exporter to that agency. And then every country has their own different versions of this. And often many countries have different regionalized ways of doing it, like China and India in particular. The different ports can be very different in how they manage all this stuff. So it's extremely complex. Yeah, that makes sense. And you start doing this stuff, right? And you come from what feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a a blue collar background. That's where you come from, using your hands and building the backbone of this economy, whether it's construction, whether it's shipping and logistics, whatever that might be. Did you always know like this is what you really wanted to do? Like, is it something that comes, (laughs) does that question make sense? Like, is it something that comes from within you? Where does it come from? You know, I think it's one of these massive industries that no one really knows much about. And no, I had no intention. You know, I was a international business major, which I guess kind of lent itself to what I was doing. But I had no idea about freight forwarding or logistics or supply chain type business. But, you know, it's just something I fell into in the sense that I, I met this guy who founded this company. And to be really honest, the first six months I was working there, I didn't really have it figured out what they did. You know, it was just a, it was just a job and out of school. And, and then I kind of, I honestly, I fell in love with it. It's so challenging and there's so much complexity to it. You know, honestly, a big part of the reason I fell in love with it was the culture at Expeditors was fantastic. And there was a lot of people there that took an interest in me and cared about me and mentored me and allowed me to keep taking on more challenges and, and moving on up. So I think it's better now. I, you know, there's a lot of universities now that have supply chain and logistics programs. You can be degreed in it. There's a lot of programs. But when I went to school, what they called logistics was actually a stats class. It was statistics, really, right? And that was about as far as you got in any kind of logistical type of management or degree. So what qualifies as freight? So like if I send my family in Iran, the new iPhone that was, you know, here in America, that's not freight. What is the delineation between what is being shipped globally that constitutes freight? Well, I think actually that that iPhone that you would ship is freight because you would put it in a box that have a tracking number on it. You would put it on a conveyance. You get it to the post office or FedEx or, you know, a freight forwarding company like Flexport. And that box would probably be consolidated with other shipments going to Iran, and then that would be freight on a plane or a vessel. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the world's international cargo moves on the water, right? So all the big containers that you see that go on the vessels that pull the Port of Oakland along Beach or Newark, those vessels, that's all freight. Air freight is essentially everything that moves on all the international aircraft that's going back and forth that's built up into consolidations and placed on those planes. So anytime you've taken an overseas flight on a wide-body aircraft, there's definitely freight on that plane that's being right along with the passengers. The majority of that hold is cargo capacity of international air cargo. No kidding. So United takes a cut for transporting someone's freight. Oh, absolutely. So someone like Flexport would contract United Airlines to move freight on their behalf. Got it. Okay, that's a good transition to Flexport. So for those listening that haven't heard of it, $1.3 billion of funding. Most recently did the Series D. I think Founders Fund led that Series D. YC Company, maybe it was SoftBank. Anyway, YC Company, 
$470 million of annual revenue, $3.2 billion valuation. In 2018, it was named the eighth fastest growing company in America. In its first three years, monthly revenue was growing by an average of 25% a month. Absolutely mind-boggling stats. So let me ask you this. What was the first point that you heard of Flexport? When you were at Expeditors, I imagine was that first point. What did you think? Like, oh, these guys are crazy. It's a bunch of tech guys trying to do global <laughs> supply chain and logistics. Like, what did you think? And then can you walk me through the process of how you ended up from Expeditors, 17 years there? Walk me through that process to getting to Flexport. Sure, sure. Well, I lived in the Bay Area from October of 07, right up until a few months ago where I relocated back home to Seattle with my family and I managed that region for Expeditors. So I absolutely knew who Flexport was. I actually knew of Ryan Peterson, the founder and CEO, you know, my boss at Flexport when he started Import Genius, which was a, uh, it helped companies get data in terms of importing cargo. And that's a whole another story how Ryan got started, but he has this grandiose idea of making global trade easy for everyone, for all the complexity that we just start talking about. And what he's really trying to do and what the mission of the company is, is to really digitize to drive down the cost of serve and drive more visibility to what's going on because it's so complex and there's so many nodes in there. And so sure, I heard about it and I thought, yeah, that's a great idea, but I don't know how much of tech guys pull that off. And so we, you know, we watched them steadily grow over time. And honestly, I didn't leave Expeditors to join Flexport. I left Expeditors because my oldest was getting ready to go to college. And I was a little burnt and tired of all the travel and and don't get me wrong, that's nothing on Expeditors. I just was going like hell for like 10, 15 years. And I decided that I wanted to take a really long extended period of time off. So I took six months off. I left and a lot of people thought I was crazy walking away from that job. And back of my mind, I think I thought I was a little crazy too, but I decided <laughs> it was the right thing to do because they were really great to me. I mean, it was just a wonderful place to be, especially as a younger man, just being taught really to be a good business person. One of my clients, when I was at Expeditors, had done the same thing a year earlier to get me motivation to like take this big chunk of time off, you know, just like a loop of faith and, and took some time off. So I did what he did. And when I got, took my six months vacation and when I came back, he had joined this consultancy called ONTAP and they focused really heavily on contract manufacturing and really heavy with startups and venture capital. And they needed somebody to be focused in on logistics and supply chain because you know, the typical company, right? You come up with a great idea, a great device or something. And there's a lot of people around that that are building it. And there's a lot of tech, but they don't understand how to source it, say from a factory in China, and then most importantly, distribute it around the world, right? And if you don't know how to do those things, it can sink your company overnight because the costs and the sure, you know, churn on the organization by not being there. So that consultancy led to me working with different companies. In one of those companies, we put a bid out and we invited Flexport to bid, and they ended up meeting this fellow named Ben Braverman, who's one of the original people with Flexport. And that led to a meeting with Sonam Anders, who's their COO, and a couple of meetings with Ryan. And it started off, they said, hey, why don't you come consult? We're interested in all this work you did with Expeditors. We're scaling this company at this incredible rate. A couple hours a week led to a couple of days, and a couple of days led to a full week. And pretty soon, I was almost working there full time. And August 1, I took over as a CRO. And it's been just a great experience. I, I needed the time off to kind of get re-energized and think about 
how Flexport fits in the market and how to generate revenue for the company. And the other part about it was it's way more on the tech side than the freight forwarding side. And I have a really huge interest in that. And so the kind of things came together and that's how I ended up Flexport. It's a great story. So question about your time off. Mm-hmm. So this weekend, as an example, I'm going to Joshua Tree for a day on Saturday, okay? And it's just Jubin's time alone. And I don't really do that, but I'm like, you know what? There's just a lot going on and I need a little bit of space. And I was thinking to myself, what do I even think about? Am I supposed to think about work? Because that's where I'm going to think about. Or like, is this my opportunity to shut off? And maybe that's where the creative juices flow. I love it. It doesn't even feel like work, right? This is just what I love to think about and do. And I was starting to kind of have an internal dialogue of, no, 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 don't think of work. Go explore nature and like do whatever you want to do out there. So maybe this is my way of asking, during those six months, what'd you do? Did you sit around? Did you think about work? <laughs> you mentioned you were thinking about where Flexport fit into the industry. Was that an opportunity for you to reevaluate where you might fit into the market going into your next move? What happened during that time? Because I fantasize about that, you know, a day, let alone six months. Well, you know, I have to credit my wife, she really pushed me to do it. She's like, Hey, you've been running around like crazy for all these years. Your oldest is getting ready to go to college. Um, you know, at the time we lived in the Bay area, my daughter's uh, a sophomore at Seattle university, a lot of past for me pulled back to Seattle. And she's like, Hey, you're never going to get another chance to really spend this time with her. Right. She's turned into an adult and going to go start her life. Right. She's not going to be home all the time. And that was probably the biggest thing for me. You know, the other part was I, <laughs> I just like you, I, you know, I realized that I couldn't turn it off. I was constantly thinking about work. I didn't have a lot of hobbies and it, it, I just needed to turn it off for a while. And I, I kind of came to that conclusion. And again, it wasn't not a negative thing about expediters. It was just for me personally, where I was at in my life. And so, you know, what did I do? We immediately went on a trip to Europe. It was weird because we spent like, you know, three weeks bouncing around Europe as a family. Cause I have a, I have a son that's uh, 16 as well. You know, and every day I'd get up really early, get coffee and check my messages. Well, there was no messages. No one was looking for me, you know, which was a really odd thing. And then it probably took me a week or two to get away from, you know, just that kind of sense of, hey, I'm missing out on something or I should be connected to things. And then I really enjoyed it. It was great. I mean, until that period of time, the maximum amount of time I've ever taken off was two weeks at one period of time. So, you know, 25 years and never taken off more than like a two week vacation and to take all that time off. It was, it was just good for the soul and my family. And the other part about it was I'd never had a time in my life where I didn't have an agenda every day. I mean, you know, it's like, right. You're mm-hmm. looking at your phone before you go to bed you look at your phone in the morning and say, well, all the things I got to do today, that just kind of stopped for a period of time. And I really started thinking about what I wanted to do. And I knew that there were some people interested in me doing consulting work and those Things showed up the minute I, I left expediters. People were hitting me up about that. And then the other part was I was super interested in tech and how it fit in the industry. And I wasn't necessarily thinking about Flexport. I was just thinking about a lot of these companies that were you know, iterating in this space. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that and reading about things. And, and so when the opportunity came up to consult at Flexport, it was just like this perfect thing. Of, I had enough time off to relax. I learned about a lot of things that interest me in that space. And it was sort of just the perfect confluence of events. So I was really lucky and fortunate that it rolled out that way. You're inspiring the audience now to go take some time off. <laughs> it was hard for me to take the time off. It, it was really hard. Yeah, but you think about it. 
I mean, I've done week and a half, two week vacations. That's my upper limit as well. By the time, you know, you travel, you get there, as soon as you start turning off, the vacation's over, right? Like, yeah. And then you're, and you're back on again. And so it kind of, in some weird way, defeats the purpose. You talk quite highly of the culture and your time at Expeditors. And obviously we think of suit and tie and what that means for a company culture as a negative thing. Mm -hmm. I actually think there's a lot of positives in that. And I think more to your point, it alludes to a set of disciplines that they apply over like, look, it's a fortune 500 company that didn't happen by accident. Right. To your point, going from 40 million to 8 billion organically, they're obviously doing something right. When you came in, And I think there's this ethos of it's a bunch of cowboys in Silicon Valley that are doing things their own way. And sometimes they need a COO, as an example, to come in. You see the WeWorks of the world where, you know, there needs to be some of that old school discipline. Do you feel like you were able to take some of what you learned and apply it in a good way around operational rigor and some of the things that you've taken from your 17 years and bring that over to Flexport? No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, expeditors is uh, from the ground up, there's an expectation that you understand the finance and the business piece of it as you go up the ranks there, right? So the CFO there often says from the GL level of any shipment or transaction all the way up to the top of the financials that get released quarterly, any business leader there should be able to explain that whole financial process, right? Revenue, expense, how you manage all those things in an ever-changing environment and the financial disciplines to really understand your costs at any one time. You know, Expeditors is a very young company compared to the rest of the industry. So Expeditors is in the mid-40s in terms of their age. But the really big players, most of them are European, have been around 100 plus years, literally. And so to get to that level where you compete with them, they had to ramp up their gross revenue, which is a good plan. And now we're kind of going backwards and we're building in the disciplines and the, and the financial products and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's a lot of what I add to it because I've I've just been coached by a bunch of people that really understood the industry and, and understood the disciplines around these things. It's in my DNA in terms of how I look at everything. <laughs> that's probably the biggest thing I take to Flexport for my experience days. Yeah. So I read this quote. Of the top 100 freight forwarders, Flexport is the only one founded after Netscape. And I think what that quote means is Netscape was the advent of really the modern internet and web browsing. And you said Expeditors is relatively young, right? 40 years. I think our audience would kind of chuckle at that. That's a (laughs) dinosaur in our world. Can you do me a favor and tell me what the world is like before Flexport? And maybe you could use it in a, let's say the gap ships a bunch of clothes from San Francisco across seas. What happens? Could you just walk me through the process of what happens? How many hands does it exchange? What was Mm -hmm. the process like before? And then how has that changed with Flexport? I think that's a good way for us to maybe approach how Flexport is disrupting this industry in such a meaningful way. Sure. Is that a fair way to do it? Yeah, I think think it's a good way to do it. And I think it's important to say that, hey, a lot of those companies in the space have expeditors or, you know, the big ones like Kunanagel or DSV. These are all European-based companies. DHL, I'm sure that's name everybody recognizes. Even UPS and FedEx, they have great tech, right? I mean, they absolutely understand how to use technology to manage it. The difference between 
the way Flexport and say like Expeditors or someone else's in my, in my mind is that we're trying to build an operating system for global trade that pulls together all the disparate nodes in the process. So if we walk through that example that you're talking about, the gap, which is a good one, you know, that starts up as way upstream in the sense that there's someone designs a piece of clothing and they say, okay, this is the clothing we're going to put out in the marketplace, right? And then a buyer shops it around to different factories to build it. And then they, they place an order, usually with a PO. And in clothing, there could be a million different versions of that PO. Style, color, fabric, all the different pieces and, and things that need to be registered and, and managed and, and data points that need to have visibility to. And the reason you need visibility to is the obvious ones like, hey, you want to know you put so many pieces of this color and size into this gap store versus the other one. But also the regulatory pieces, because for instance, like with clothing, depending if it's a woman's shirt or a men's shirt or the knit or the fabric, depends on how much duty you're going to pay in the country or how it's classified when you bring this stuff into the country, right? And then if you think about somebody like The Gap, who's having textile factories all around the world building their product, you need to know X factory dates, when the freight's going to be ready. How much of it is ready against the PO? Can you have visibility to all that? And it's loaded aboard the container when the container leaves the dock, when the dock gets to the port, when it's loaded on board the vessel. And at the time it's loaded on board the vessel, there's data that needs to be sent to all kinds of nodes across the world. So you've got customs agencies and the buyers at the gap and the customs agents and truckers and warehouses and third-party distribution centers. And I'm not even touching like half of it right now when we're talking about. It. So you can already see sort of the complexity of what's going on. So this data is being strewn out all over the world. And, and all the people that need to play a part in that importation or that shipment need to grab that data to do their job. And some of it's highly automated. And some of it is still literally fax documents or Excel spreadsheets emailed around and people putting stuff into computers, right? And so... Lots of companies like Xpares and Kunanagal are working hard to digitize that and put it into their systems. But Flexport's building it in a way where it's much more iterative going back and forth with the client. And the client has overall visibility of all these different nodes that they can connect into the system. And right now it's available to the freight we're actually moving as a freight forwarder. But our vision and what will be available in the not too distant future is Flexport is a SaaS where whether you use Flexport or you use one of those other carriers or you used different trucking companies, they could all come up through that portal and you'd have global visibility to the whole supply chain. And no one's really doing that right now. And that's part of the big offering and value proposition for Flexport. And we're pretty close to being able to do that. And so taking that a step further from the gap, there's probably what, like 15, 20 different companies touching it from where that story started with the gap to when it gets to its destination. Is that right? Easily, yeah. And with Flexport, are you basically trying to vertically integrate that whole supply chain? So where things would have been an insurance company that would have to be involved to insure the goods, there would have to be a transparent pricing that was never there before. There would have to be a custom brokerage involved. There would have to be a shipping company that would have to be involved. There'd have to be software that is disparate between all these different vendors. There'd have to be trade financing, right? To actually finance some of these goods. You can bring all of that in-house 
with a common modality that is a piece of software that gives you visibility into that shipment from San Francisco to wherever it might be going. Is that completely off base? No, that's actually pretty close. And that's exactly sort of the vision. And lots of companies can do different pieces of those, but they still do it with a lot of labor. So for instance, somebody like Expeditors or Kunanagel has offices in every major port in the world, hundreds of offices. And part of that is because you have to have boots on the ground to manually take this data and shipments and, and create documents for these shipments and upload all this data. And we just continue to find ways to automate those processes. So our cost to serve continues to go down drastically compared to the competition because of the technology involved to do that, right? It's just taking all those steps and making it more digitized, essentially, right? And through all kinds of things, through AI, through OCR, through just all kinds of different ways to drive that the processing time down to the shipments. And so the goal is to be the volume where you're a value leader in terms of the visibility and attack that's involved, but also being able to drive down a lower cost of serve for our customers to move those products around the world. The thing about freight forwarding is most of our competition runs on disparate systems. Their tech is disparate because they've grown through acquisitions, right? So they've got like mm-hmm. all these different ERPs that they're trying to pull together. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of holes in that visibility. Somebody like Expeditors actually runs on the same global platform like Flexport. The difference is that platform isn't available to all their partners. They're not in there iterating with it. They might be sending data messages back and forth, but they're not running on the same actual platform. And we're just to the point now we're bringing our partners on ball. Instead of having all those offices around the world, we're in key locations where we think we need to have boots on the ground. And then in the other places, we're working with the very best partner possible. And they're handling all the origin services, like picking up the freight and getting on board of the vessel and all that. But we're managing the capacity on that ocean liner air carrier, as well as that partners using our tech to manage that whole piece. And they can use that tech to work with us or work with another partner that they have. And so because of that, we don't have hundreds of offices around the world, but it's pretty invisible to our customers because they're working in the same system and iterating with our customer service people via the same platform. And so we're using that tech to drive down our cost to serve and providing a better level of visibility to our customers. Yeah. So if I put my sales hat on, what I love about this is it's tangible, quantifiable things that the customers can achieve, right? And that is anything from your shipment will get there faster. Mm -hmm. That is anything from it will be cheaper. That is anything from it will be more reliable. So I've seen stats or I've heard Ryan talk about in our industry, it's not abnormal for 30% of all shipments to be canceled for one reason or another. And again, I have no idea. But like in Flexport's case, you're trying to drive that number below 1%, right? That is some seriously quantifiable customer value. So you have this beautiful business model, okay? Right. That's completely upending an industry. That's just doing things There's no other way to say it better than the way that it's been done before. And better means better for the customer. And so you have all of these customers piling on, which has led to this incredible growth of this company. Well, how do you support a go-to-market like that? When you think of like, all right, now that I'm chief revenue officer of this company, it's a tech-enabled company, but it's not a tech company. It's a global logistics company that's powered by tech. 
So how yeah. do you think about just building a go-to-market in this world? Right, right. Well, a huge part of my responsibility at Expeditors was sales, right, and driving business. So I had a very large sales team working in my region. And so I'm, I'm very used to that piece of it. I think the thing that we're refining is, and you hit on it, is that we're a tech-enabled company, but we're not a tech company per se, right? I mean, of all our competitors, we're definitely strong and tech-focused more than they are. All the things we talked about makes it such a complex sell. And so the one thing that we need to make sure is that, first of all, our sales teams and our customer service people can speak to all those things. They understand the process and they really understand and have a deep knowledge of how all this stuff works. And that's the challenge when you're coming from a tech background versus a freight forwarding background is that, you know, I just know how all this stuff works because I've spent my entire adult life in it and being coached by people that knew it way before I did. Mm-hmm. One of our challenges is closing that gap with our sales team. Because when you think about it, it's not like a SaaS company or something where you're selling a subscription to something. And, and I'm not trying to belittle that sales process. Sure. Sales, anything is tough, right? Getting somebody to buy from you is not an easy thing. And that's why everybody can't do it. But when you talk about free forwarding and shipping, there's two things that are really different from a lot of other things when it comes to sales. One is that it's really expensive. If we're not optimizing every conveyance and load for that customer, they're paying more than they should. And then the second thing, which is even probably more important, is that you're moving the customer's assets around the world. So there's an incredible amount of trust that has to be built up that you know what you're doing, that you can do it safely and securely. Because a fail in our industry means somebody didn't make a sale. They lost the ability to have their goods in the store or parts for an assembly line. Or, you know, you're talking about all these things like like vaccines and things right now that are going to go out for COVID. There's all these parts of the supply chain. And so the trust that you have to build up with customers is really extreme. And it's a tougher sell and it's a longer term sell. And that's kind of hard in the tech industry because we want to like, hey, I'm churning and burning. I'm signing this guy up for this uh, cloud service. And then I'm going on to the next one. And we've really had to focus on now it's a solution-based, longer-term sell. And it's certainly something I learned from expediters is they really take the approach of, hey, sometimes it takes calling on somebody three, four, five years before you get an opportunity. Mm. And that's kind of anti-culture in Silicon Valley of moving fast and breaking things and driving relationship with customers. And obviously, we want to move faster than that if we can, but that's part of the deal. That's why I love the title of your podcast. The grit part really speaks to me because I think it takes a lot of grit to, to be in this industry from a business development standpoint, sales standpoint. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So let me throw this one at you. Most of my guests, let's just use the Shopify CRO as an example. will say, hey, I do not care about domain expertise. In fact, there's no correlation between past performance in sales and how they're going to do in this current job. Give me somebody that has the right DNA, the right sets of grit and other things, and show me that they've been excellent as a piano player, or show me some hardship that they face and the way that they've overcome those, and I will show you that they will be successful in this role, okay? And mm-hmm. that is a ethos that many of my guests have shared because the reality is they believe that relationships don't matter, and to your point, they might not in a more transactional world. Domain expertise. They believe that domain expertise don't really matter. 
if you have the right fundamentals on how to execute a proof of value, you will be just fine as an example. And you couple that with grit and that kind of thing. So I understand why that's not the case in this industry, just not how it is here. If trust is so important and domain expertise are so important, then you continue to hire a similar set of people who have built trust with those customers and who have had a domain, who have domain expertise doing this job for a really long time. My question is, how do you bring in fresh blood? How do you bring in the next set of superstars, leaders, talent, or maybe someone just says, man, I love how important this industry is to the way that our society functions. And they don't come from your world, but they are living in the Bay Area and they want to be a part of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. How do you bring that in when the prerequisites have so much to do with trust and domain expertise that they might not have? Does the question make sense? Yeah, it does. And it actually, it's a great question and it's super germane to where we're at right now with Flexport. So one of the original guys with Expediters who I work for on and off, he's actually the longest tenured, I think he's still the longest tenured employee at Expediters. He's on the E-team there. He would tell me all the time that, hey, in this business, it's not the contract or the pricing. The way you get through all that stuff is relationship because there has to be this level of trust just for all the things we already talked about. So, hey, I'm not trying to disagree with a CRO of Shopify. I can just tell you that if you sit down with my counterpart, like a supply chain VP at Apple, if you can't exhibit to Apple that you have extensive domain expertise in logistics and supply chain, it's going to be a really short meeting because there is no way they're going to trust you with the next NPI of, of iPhones mm-hmm. just because you're a good seller. It's just not going to happen. And so I think that's the fundamental difference. How we build that at Flexport is as we're a really young company and we're much more on the tech side and our sales and business type people come from that tech side. One, it's really impressive how much these guys have learned about the industry in a short period of time. They're exceptional quick studies and they know they're a lot deeper in knowledge than probably most people give them credit for. So that's that's the first thing. And I think you just do that by learning and probably taking some bumps and you know having some failures and successes along the way, right? You learn. But we've actually been out hiring domain expertise from the industry. And so we have a lot of people now that have that deep level of understanding. And, and what our jobs are is to train everybody and get them up to speed on on what's important to customers. And, you know, we don't want to move away from our tech REITs because that's what makes us unique. But at the same time, we've got to level up everybody to a certain area of, of domain expertise to be able to sell and really put together solutions for our customers that make sense. There is a narrative in Silicon Valley that says, you know, I call it like the steak dinner rep, the relationship rep is a dying breed. And Mm -hmm. there is a negative stigma around it, around like, well, they don't work that hard because they rely on a set of relationships that they have, that they've been building, and they don't go and hunt for new opportunities and prospecting and doing that kind of thing where, Mm -hmm. you know, if you are a young gun that grew up as a BDR doing cold calling, you just have that in you a little bit more. How do you respond to that? The best salespeople I've ever been around, whether they've been at Expeditors or they've at Flexport now, or people that have sold to me for various things, they just want to keep closing more business and earn more money. I mean, you know, it's kind of innate in them. I think there's this idea that 
of that kind of that old four martini lunch and you build up a certain amount of a book of business and then you just live off it for the next 20 years. Yeah. Hey, I can tell you, it's funny you bring this up because we just had this conversation this morning because we were kind of tweaking some of our sales compensation plans. My issue with that is, is that you have the right sales leadership. You're not going to let those guys coast, those people coast and do those things. They need to continue to bring on more revenue. And if they can't, then they can't stay in those roles. When you find the people that are really good at it and they continue to bring on business and they stay hungry, those people are golden and you should do everything you can to retain them. And I think we've got a really good stable of people at Flexport that meet those criteria. And that's the way it was at Exhibitors. That organization is not going to let you coast just because you have a big book of business. They expect you to keep growing it. And there's goals and metrics for you to get there. And you know what I would also think is really interesting with that argument, Jovan, is that those people are usually really great at rallying the enterprise behind them to help close business. They know how to sell internally as well as they sell externally. They've got people behind them. They've got the juice to make things happen with an organization and get the price and they need whatever it is, right, to take care of that customer. I don't know. I don't really buy into that. I think that grit thing, when you identify that grit thing with certain individuals, I just think they're always hungry. Let me take this one step further because I think it's Mm -hmm. really interesting. And I know this is unfair because you're not, but if you were in a more of a traditional SaaS-based software business, do you think you'd still be effective at hiring that person and being able to qualify for that grit and maintaining this sense of professionalism and trust building and relationship building that you get today from some of the folks that are on your team? That's a hard one because I, I came up to this other industry, right? So I know the way I think about this is just kind of hardwired into me because the people that mentored me and coached me at, at Expedition yeah. felt this way, right? And, they, and it wasn't just they felt this way. They were extremely successful at it yeah. that way, right? Yeah. So that's my base of knowledge and learning how to do that. Right. You know, you use the Shopify uh, CRO, who I'd love to meet, right? Because I'd love to hear like someone on the other side would say about this, but... I'll connect you guys. Yeah, well, I assume that he knows what he's doing, right? Because yeah. and, and that methodology and thought process really plays in that industry. Otherwise, Shopify wouldn't be Shopify, right? I mean, they're obviously incredibly successful. Yeah. So I, I don't know how to answer that. I, I really believe the relationship counts, though, just in general. Because I've had time to build up relationships with a lot of people that make these decisions in the industry, our customer base, it's easy for me to get appointments with them on behalf of Flexport just because a lot of them are friends. I've known them for years. I can just pick up the phone and call them. I I don't have to work through a whole labyrinth of people to get their attention. That's not because I'm some great salesperson. That is because I built that trust and we're friends and we have a relationship and that's been going on for a long time. I watch the same thing at Expeditors and, and I'm really... I'm just a big believer in that. I think it makes a difference. Yeah. You know, I tend to agree with you in a lot of respects. I really do. Like even your CISO, Kevin Page, who oh, yeah. he said to make sure that I tell you how lucky <laughs> you are that you have such an incredible security leader as a partner. That, that's true. I am very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> He's a friend. And it started out as like, we did business together. Not even, we just met each other through like the sales rep and CISO relationship. And over time, I have the opportunity to prep for this. And I called Kevin and I'm like, hey, what zingers do you have for me? You know, what, <laughs> what, what could I ask Will? And in another world, in another time, I've been able to introduce Kevin to folks that I think are cutting edge technologies in the Kleiner portfolio that he might be interested in solving Flexport's problems. 
And that happens over many lunches, beers, dinners, and just a relationship that the two exactly. of us have built that has an implicit sense of trust that he knows that I'm looking out for his best interest in that. And I hope to have that for another 20 years with mm -hmm. Kevin. I do think it matters. And I do think we have, to some degree, over-rotated into a very transactional format of the way that we do selling and business in Silicon Valley, part and parcel because we're a victim of our own success, where sometimes the sales rep doesn't even necessarily need to be there in order for the customer to buy that product, right? Because the product is so dang effective. Right. It's been the hardest thing taking on this job right during the middle of the code thing, because normally I would be out around the world meeting all our people and meeting customers and, you know, video. And I worry that I'm not able to develop deeper relationships, both internally and externally, because of the situation we're all in, right? And especially being newer to Flexport. Because I think all those things, like you said, just really count. And for me, just personally, just for me, it's the best part of the job. You know, I don't want to stare at a computer all day. I, I love talking to people and being out in front of folks and learning about their lives and what they're doing and what makes them tick. And, and it's not to say everything's a big party. I mean, usually a lot of our these meetings are very intense and it's all about business, but it's that personal interaction is what makes it fun. And for me, it's just kind of the juice of the job. I, I don't know that I want to do it a different way. I don't know that it would be fulfilling to me. That's just personally how I'm kind of wired. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, again, there's this notion of efficiency that people are starting to trick themselves into during COVID. Like, I am so efficient. I can do so many more meetings. Yeah. But you lose depth. What you gain in volume, you lose in depth. And I think sometimes that depth, it can be really, really important. And I think relationships are important when things get testy, when things get tough, when you have to ask someone exactly. who you know, hey, this is my limit on this discount or this shipment is gonna be delayed. I'm really sorry. Let me continue to earn your business. When the going gets tough is when relationships are tested and when you need that relationship to lean on. Whereas in a SaaS business, you transact then customer success comes on and, you know, the sales rep kind of dissipates and customer success deals with the burden of maybe any problems that the technology might have. And then the downside for that rep is that, well, maybe there's no expansion opportunity for me. The reality is there usually is anyway, because the tech is so good. It fits such a niche. So anyway, I think we see eye to eye on this one. And I know I'm running up against time here. One more question and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. This framework that you have coming into a Silicon Valley tech company, if you will, was there a tension or, I don't know, was there just like a different set of ethos that you and the leadership team, Kevin, as an example, mm -hmm. you know, he was at Salesforce and he was at MuleSoft and now he's at Flexport and, you know, you guys obviously have very complimentary jobs, but I assume the rest of the executive team fits more of that profile than it does potentially yours. And that's a huge assumption, but is there a constant kind of maybe tug of war of different perspectives on the way this thing works? You know, I thought there might be, because that was actually my biggest question about joining. It's like, Hey, I mean, I'm coming at this from a completely different perspective than the rest of these guys are in some ways. Right. You know, I don't know if it's just luck or kismet or whatever you want to call it, but Ryan and Sonam Anders, who's our CLO, and one of the original guys with Flexport and myself, especially super aligned about how we think about these things in the opportunity in the market for Flexport. I definitely come at it from more of a freight forwarding. Here's how we make money at freight forwarding. 
Here's what's important in terms of our customers. You know, Ryan comes at it from, we should push the envelope on the tech in this space to be the most efficient tech board company we can in logistics. And I believe that too. We kind of laugh that Ryan's like, hey, let's go for it. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds interesting. Let's think about it. And Son is the anchor and goes, hey, absolutely no way. You guys are nuts. What are you doing? And, and by, <laughs> we, we talk through things and we end up sort of getting to the right conclusion. But, you know, I don't think so. I am definitely not a technologist, say like Ryan or mm. James Chen, who's our, our CIO, who's an ex-Amazon and Rakuten, just a crazy brilliant person. But I, I'm a tech savvy person, I think, and I appreciate what we can do with technology to improve our customers' companies and, and supply chains. And so I don't think there's an ethos thing that's a part. And then, you know, the things that are really important to me is how do we see things the right way and how we treat employees and customers and the culture of the company. And we're 100% aligned there. We think the same way. And that's super important to me. I worked for great people at Expeditors that had a good moral compass. I don't believe this thing that all big companies are like evil. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. I'm sorry, I went on a podcast, but I just think that that's kind of garbage. I don't buy into that. I actually think most people and most leaders go to work every day trying to do the right thing for their employees and their customers. And we're trying to do that same thing at Flexport. And that's probably the most important thing for me. I can get over anything else if those things are in place. Yeah, that's a hell of a place for us to wrap it. I wish we yeah. didn't have to. I close all of these things with the same questions. The first, and you've already alluded to this, but what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? You know, grit to me is just that understanding that nothing really comes easy and you've got to put the work in to get the desired result. You get lucky every once in a while, but it takes a lot of grit in sales and business development to get somebody to trust you with their business. And it's it can be a grind at sometimes and you've got to have the grit to get through it. For those that are listening to this, are you hiring? And maybe the audience, as you can imagine, is more tech people yep. are you hiring for any any roles that do not require a ton of domain expertise in the shipping and logistics business yeah we absolutely are i mean if you go to our website you'll see all the open recs you can connect to tons of us on linkedin if you're interested we post a lot of job openings there as well everything from the maker's side to customer service positions i'm always interested in people that are interested in sales even if we have a job opening or not i mean we're in hiring mode we're definitely trying to be measured, but we've got a lot of open spots. You should, if you're interested in Flexport, you should really reach out. Awesome. Well, this was awesome. Thank you for the time, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.